but that's a bit played out at this point. Yeah. We all know. We all know I'm not going to play the good guys. Anyway. I mean, I would do the Bretonians. I mean, Bretonians are pretty sick. Anyway. <laughs> your, whole, your, your whole point. Your whole point. Your whole point. You know what? No, we'll just talk about that. What, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. We've got a great episode for you. Excellent. Dear episode. listeners. Dear <laughs> listeners. Episode. It's funny. Last week, I think you were trying to make a point, and perhaps I interrupted you, that like our pre-Christmas episode was actually like, the abolish the family episode when everybody's oh, yeah. about to go and see their families kind of thing and and this one this one it gets this isn't going to make much sense to people until they get a ways in but this is kind of like a <laughs> january new year's resolution like rise and grind um, yeah, it is actually. new new me my, my my like youtube algorithm is just full of like interviews with like ceos and like how to how to how to new like 10 habits to reinforce this or yeah, 10 exactly. ways to or how did all of it's like there was a lot a lot of it's targets at me there's a lot of like weird like gut microbiome like how to <laughs> i imagine i just imagine those videos are like 10 habits you need to do to be a successful person or just like brush your teeth <laughs> it's like it's like the jordan peterson or whoever it was ben shapiro one of those idiots who did the like the rules you need for life and one of them was like wear good clothes <laughs> it's like wow it's so true <laughs> yes. anyway but what, what if you don't have access to good clothes what if you <laughs> yeah exactly indeed what if you what cannot if you... exchange your commodities for a bit of that social wealth indeed um I'm feeling a bit silly because we've been podcasting for quite some time, so we'll we'll just get to it. Also, welcome back, Dan. We haven't podcasted together in a it's long been, time. This is like the biggest weeks. break we've had for uh, well, actually not that long. Well, since no, August. We, yeah, anyway, yeah. <laughs> Happy New Year, everybody! Yeah, 2024. Yeah. Um, you are correct, Dan, to think that it is New Year, New Us, Rising Grind, Hustle Culture. We're making an effort at value theory. This show has been going on for about three years, I think, over mm-hmm. three years. Um, we made an aborted effort to discuss the first volume of Capital way back. It almost um, ended the podcast. <laughs> it almost ended the podcast. It almost ended time. Uh, <laughs> we did our best, but we quickly realized that we were getting overwhelmed. Um, all this time later, we were like, you know what? We should actually probably understand this stuff. Because the more that you read into different you know, theories of Marxist revolutionary change, theories of historical development the more that becomes apparent that like hey actually maybe you won't be fully informed about how a lot of this stuff works unless you really understand the like way that labor is disciplined under capitalism and the way that value theory operates and um so we're like hey maybe we should actually try and um understand some of this stuff and to that end a couple of months ago i was at the london anarchist book fair uh, as i've taken to going to every year because it's just a great time it's so much fun and there was a group there called Kritistikuffs. I think that's how I was that's told to pronounce it, Kritistikuffs, um, who were giving away some of their pamphlets. They're like a value theory group, I believe. That might be, a, maybe they do other stuff. Seems like they're well known for doing value theory stuff, doing various capital reading groups. Um, and one of the pamphlets that they were giving away, there's a horrible noise outside, was one, a short one called A Companion to David Harvey's Companion to Marx's Capital. And it's basically a part criticism of David Harvey's Companion to Marx's Capital, which was kind of like all the rage for quite some time in terms of capital, you know, primers, basically, or companions to capital, and part like an explanation of their interpretation of Marx's value theory. Dan and I both read it. We were both very impressed. And um, it turned out, actually, that one of the listeners to the show, 
is a member of that group. And we'd actually been emailing back and forth a little while about various kind of value theory stuff that we'd gotten wrong on the show. Um, and they decided, well, it turned out, basically, we found out later on that they were a member of this group. And we asked them on the show to kind of help us understand a bit more about value theory and to discuss this text, a companion to David Harvey's companion to Marx's capital. Um, and it wound up being so great. Like I, I seriously, the person we spoke to Mark um, really clarified a lot of this stuff for me and a lot of like longstanding misunderstandings that I've had and issues that I've had with value theory in just like an eminently understandable way. Um, and that's what, we recorded and you're about to hear. So Dan, what do you think? I mean, I had a great time. I think it was fabulous. Yeah. I'd just like to reiterate my thanks to Mark again for coming and um, answering our questions and having the discussion with us and speaking very eloquently and clearly and concisely in a way which is, um, yeah, immeasurably advanced my understanding of these things. I also do want to sort of encourage people to read this text, not just because it's a critique of david harvey and it might be fun to do engage in a little bit of like intermarxian warfare or whatever <laughs> but um but also is um my experience was it was quite a unique uh it, from what i've read a sort of unique exposition of the what marx is describing in the first chapter of capital um in a way that i hadn't come across before and um that encompass in combination with the discussion we've just had with Mark um, have been hugely helpful and made me quite keen to go back to Capital once again. So, yeah, um, yeah, please enjoy. Yeah, yeah. everybody enjoy. Um, one of the great things about this too is that, uh, unlike a lot of kind of companions or explanations of Marxist Capital, I don't think you'll feel like you're being talked down to in this conversation. I certainly didn't, and I asked a lot of dumb questions. The first question I asked was, what is an economy? So, you know, uh, if I can get through it, then you can. So once again, thank you very much to Mark from Kratisticuffs. Um, whole loads of stuff about them. And if you want to get involved in one of their capital reading groups down below, um, without further ado, roll the interview. The way that you all run the capital reading groups does sound intense. <laughs> I mean, it, I, I kind of think... I was thinking about it because you told me that it's like you go through the first, you like literally will read through mm. each line of the first few chapters or whatever it was. And I was like, boy, that's intense. That sounds really gnarly. But then I was like, well, maybe that actually just kind of makes sense because you'd be hard pressed to find not just something as important, obviously, but something as like esoteric and hard to understand if you have no background, or even if you do have some background in like socialisty, Marxisty stuff as those first few chapters, because you just dropped right into it. So I don't know. I was like, maybe that is just the best way to do it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, works for me. <laughs> so I went along to a reading group originally, so I tried to read it myself and um, thought I'd understood it, realised I hadn't. So there was a reading group coming on, and it's one which um, Critistic Huffs had arranged. Um, and it does seem like just a bizarre idea. You know, read, the, read one paragraph, we all discuss it, next paragraph it does it takes forever um but it's really helpful right yeah you come out of it with at least a sense that you've grasped it i suppose then you start with like a common experience of the text rather than coming in with all of your various 
opinions on having read it privately and then you start with like quite a chaotic beginning and it's hard to then get that under control i guess that definitely because you will get people coming along who have say done a philosophy degree and sort of done hegel and marx or um don't actually get too badly but people who are trots or something who've got a very fixed thing but they can't bring that in you know they can't bring that in because no you you pull them back to the text what does no but what does that paragraph say that's that's quite funny for me because i'm remembering you know those like uh those david harvey lectures that have been the versions of his lectures that have been recorded and then put up on yeah, youtube at yeah. some point in time and i think the first introductory episode to that is like he's done a reading group with so many different he's done the reading group of marxist capital one so many times and the different groups that he does it with bring in so many different things and then he suggests i think he talks about doing it with philosophers or literary students or mm-hmm. whatever um so it's interesting that he sees that as like quite virtuous that they bring on all this different source material but you you've got a sort of uh, counterposed opinion to that where it's good to start from like if, the basics if you want to bring said. in yeah i mean if you want to bring a reading uh-huh. fine but let's talk about that in the pub yeah <laughs> and we've got i mean like we, we meet in the pub i mean talk about that you know when we're drinking afterwards um but for now what does that text say <laughs> yeah. yeah it's fine if people want to do it and i'm i don't know I'm not sure I've ever come across a reading that's actually helpful, but I'm sure, you know, it might be useful for some things, but does it help you understand the points Marx trying to get? And then do we agree with Marx's points? And then it could be, okay, if you take a certain perspective, well, what does that tell you? Um, But yeah, I think the first thing is just trying to understand the text. Well, understand and then well the two things right understand and also do i agree mm. i think we dan and i just before you joined we're talking about like why is it that it's so hard to find a like like this obviously capital has been around for a very long time now and why is it so hard to find a companion that is like like usable and true to the original text and originally i was just kind of ready to be like well part of it is just because it's difficult to understand because of the language and because you have to kind of put your brain in a different Mm. place to think how marx is thinking right and then i was also like well maybe it is too just because a lot of these companion texts are written by career academics and they kind of want to like have their bugbears into it and that's like one thing about harvey's companion to marx's capital that is very like kind of frustrating because i used it when i went through capital Mm. and despite not really understanding some of the more nuanced criticisms you could make of it right off the bat, he's like, okay, so anyway, here's what like, you know, concrete labor is all of this stuff. And man, what's the deal with people who think that the falling rate of profits real, that's pretty crazy. And it's just like Mark or uh, Harvey. It's like, why are you bringing this into it? Like he clearly just wants Mm. to like criticize other like Mm. academic veins or like socialist veins. But then it is also like, Dan, you made the point where you were like, it's also because a lot of this is just like kind of political, right? Like different readings of capital will give you different political trajectories. And you kind of want to protect protect those political trajectories based on maybe misreadings of the original texts. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's definitely that. I mean, the thing is, you, I think it's a really important book that you can draw political conclusions from. But... I think what a lot of people don't do is relate those political conclusions quite strongly to 
the text. Um, you know, so obviously you know, Marx barely mentions the state within it. And even if you're just thinking about purely kind of from an economic view, the state's really important. But because of what he was doing, how he was structuring things, his derivations, he doesn't talk so much about that. You know, you need sensibly to be able to bring the state in. And obviously the state in general, very important topic to understand and how the democratic capitalist state works. Um, and I think you can go back to this text and take some things from there to say, well, what does that tell me about what's an adequate form for the state in this society? Um, so definitely do think that, but a lot of those people who are trying to bring those things in, I don't think they're relating it to the text. I think they're bringing it into the text or just simply wanting to assert their particular view of things without kind of deriving it from what we understand about the economy from capital. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. The first, my main experience with that is the last few chapters, like the last section on primitive accumulation of the first volume, where like one of the main things Dan and I really like talking about on the show is like, um, I was a transformation problem, not the transformation problem, <laughs> um, transition debates, <laughs> like, you know, from quote unquote feudalism to capitalism, right? And there are all these debates around kind of more quantitative interpretations of primitive accumulations based around trade that you get from like Wallerstein versus like qualitative ones based around social relations directly around like the Brenner school stuff. Right. Mm. And that's where I was getting all of my thinking from. And then I went back and read, and obviously there are problems with Marx's uh, histories in that final section. But then when I went back and read that, I was like, why didn't I just read what Marx thought? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, that was kind of silly. <laughs> Um, where do you think we should go, Dan? Should we start with, um, one of my notes is what is an economy? Should we begin with that? <laughs> well, I th I, yeah, I think we, you were just saying, Jack, that one of the notes you'd written down was what is an economy? And I think that was inspired by something that I said, um, uh, just before we started recording or when you, you and I were talking beforehand, um, maybe, maybe I'll say for the listeners benefit, supposing that we haven't said it already beforehand is that, um, to aid this conversation, we read a critique of the companion. What's it called? The critique of David Harvey's companion to Marx's Capital. Um, oh, well, a companion to, to David. A Harvey's companion, companion to David Harvey's <laughs> companion. It's a much clearly much clever, a much cleverer title than I am <laughs> able to remember or spontaneously come up with. Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed about it is it was it's a sort of as I was saying before, perhaps like a very um, concise explainer on some of the some of the topics covered in Marx's Capital, in particular the early chapters. Um, and what I offer, what I'm always looking for, because this is something that I'm constantly trying to grapple with, and I sort of think that I've come to understand things, and I forget, and I come back to them and have a different experience of reading the same piece of terminology. Um, what I'm always looking for is like just different efforts and different attempts to explain. Um, Marx's value theory and Marx's critique of political economy is an ex and his explanation of what the capitalist mode of production is. Um, and it's nice coming off the back of just having a conversation about some of the uses of a Marx's analysis when it comes to an understanding of history and the historical development of modes of production. Because one of the things that I really enjoyed about this explanation was that there seems to be a 
a sort of dichotomy being made in some respects between elements of human economic systems and the history of human economies, which are almost ahistorical in the sense that there is a requirement to meet the needs of social reproduction that sort of like underlies the existence of all human societies. Um, and and from that sort of like side of the equation, you get like use value and concrete labor that produces use value. And then sort of the other side of the equation is then how does the capitalist mode of production organize the reproduction of society in a particularly unique way? Um, and what was really fun about this companion to a companion was that it sort of like, for me anyway, what seemed most clear from it was a very distinct focus on what is the capitalist mode of production and also why why is it quite a lot of the time i one of the things that i struggle with quite a lot is like this distinction between capitalism emerging organically and almost being something that's non-human and imposed on us and then trying to remember that like it was created by humans and almost like serves a very deliberate social function i suppose or like um creates a particular type of um social organization so yeah, I guess um, what is an economy? Is there something a historically required to have a human civilization? And then what has capitalism done with that historical development of human history? I guess. Yeah. What What are we talking about? What What is it that that we're describing? Um, so, yeah, any society uh, needs to materially reproduce itself. It needs to. Um, produce the things that enable its people to continue and enables itself to produce for kind of the next production cycle. So it's an ongoing process of production. And with that, also needs a division of labour. You know, certain people will be doing some things in within that production, the stuff which is necessary for that material reproduction. So, yeah, any kind of society has to have some way of organising production, this kind of division of labour. Um, and how it does that is kind of a really kind of crucial determination of how that society functions and you know, what people's experiences are. So um, in feudalism, you know, that came about through a kind of mixture of tradition and um, top-down power of people being in certain positions. You know, you're a serf, you're a lord, you might be a merchant. In a more rational society, we might all sit down and decide, well, what do we need? How do we go about doing that? Who's going to do it? Who wants to do X or Y? And in capitalism, um, there's no organisation in that sense of um, kind of a rational plan or simply some kind of, again, a traditional, you're in this role and that's what you'll do forever and then your children will do that after you and so on. So, yeah, it's the specifics of how that production and reproduction are organised that are important. And, then, yeah, that's really what underlies... Um, even thinking about value, you know, this how labour is organised. Every society has 
a pool of labor available to itself? Or how does it distribute that labor? That's that's one thing that actually I, I just kind of want to touch on a bit because I'm always tempted to just be like, whenever I start thinking about value and value theory and I kind of start getting into the weeds, I feel like I'm constantly ready to just be like, value is this metric that is the thing that, you know, uh, uh, conditions production and it and it kind of puts people back into line when they're not doing things as they should. And I kind of have this very like quantitative view of what value actually is in that it is just like a measure. And I feel like maybe I'm like one thing that you mentioned when we'd been emailing before is that like that doesn't actually go all the way to explaining what value actually is. If you just say like value is socially necessary labor time or value is abstract labor, that kind of doesn't actually explain everything as it should be explained. And so maybe maybe you can like kind of touch on that because that's something that I'm actually still kind of having a bit of an issue understanding. Like why is it that you can't just say value is abstract labor? Because I feel like in my, you know, standalone meager attempt to read through volume one, it's like, that is kind of what I just came away thinking. Yeah. Um, and it's actually going back to the text that, that we read, it is a mistake that Harvey makes. And it's quite common for anyone who has kind of read chapter one to read it and come away with an idea of, well, what is value? Oh, value is abstract labor. So, yeah. Okay. Substance of value is abstract labor, and its quantitative measure is socially necessary labor time. Um, I mean, Harvey doesn't even get that wrong. He says that uh, he defines value as being socially necessary labor time. Um, but yes, yeah, so, but that's the, the impression that people come away with, and it's really common to see people define value as abstract labor. But that's not really telling you what value is. To say that um, to identify something of its substance is missing out what its actual form is. I think um, when we were talking about this before, I made an analogy which I won't stand behind completely because I'm sure you could pick holes in this one. But if I said that um, define a table as, or what's the substance of table? It's wood. That's not really telling you much about what a table is. It's just telling you what it's made of. Um, and I think that's probably a really critical thing that people miss when they're, they're reading uh, the chapter is to just take that, that argument. Okay, oh, we've found out what the substance of, of value is and then how we determine it uh, in, in terms of magnitude. Brilliant. I understand what value is now. But yeah, that's not really telling you why this matters? What is it about the fact that something, a, a commodity, uh, can be compared to other commodities because they uh, are a result of labor in the abstract? Well, why does that make a difference? What's that? What impact is that having on the world and why? Um, I think Marx gives you the clue for this right from the first paragraph. When he notes, if you look at the world, um, the wealth of societies takes a specific form, commodity. So it's not just material stuff, you know, useful things. You know, that's what wealth is. 
it's useful stuff, it's material uh, things. Um, but he notes it's got a social form. And the most immediate thing we see of that is the commodity. Um, and then if we unpick the commodity, well, what is a commodity? It's a useful thing, which is made for exchange. So our social wealth takes this immediate form of the commodity. But what is it, again, which makes that important? Why is that? Um, why is there this social form here? And then that's where it kind of links back to what we were saying before about um, about the organization of society. So then then my my understanding, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but then going from there, then you can kind of take that to maybe mean that this is where the idea of exchangeability kind of really comes in to play and like why this is so important. And it's why commodities are so important. It isn't like, you know, you make a bunch of things at your job so that you can just immediately use them. It's like this idea of like, you make all of these things so that you can then have access to all of the things, the other things that you actually want. Like you, if you work at a chair factory, you might have use for a bunch of chairs, maybe that'd be kind of weird, but also like, it's also that you're making them so that you can then have access to like bread and, you know, I don't know, a place to live and like, you know, carpet. <laughs> I guess I'm just like looking around just, just random things. And I guess it comes back to what we were saying before about like what you were saying, Mark, about the distinction between feudalism and capitalism and a hypothetical like socialist mode of production, right? Like um, the value form and the necessity for its existence um, allows for an infinitely more complex division of labor under capitalism than existed under feudalism, but um, allows for the exchange of commodities under conditions where um, things are still privately owned and there isn't like a collective ownership of societal wealth, but rather you have this entire, you have this body of societal wealth, everything that society makes, my understanding anyway of social wealth as it's um, talked about in this text is like, uh, all of the things that society makes that are necessary for society's reproduction, but then you work out, then you need some kind of mechanism to work out how to get things to people that need them um, and a way for people to prove that they've made some kind of contribution to the totality of social wealth to sort of be deserving of a portion back kind of thing. And th that's that's how you get this really interesting like um contradiction that's um apparent in this text where you have the idea that like um we're all creating social wealth collectively but under conditions of like antagonism between producers rather than under conditions of mutual agreement uh, and pre-existing social relations but um relations yeah. that emerge at the point of exchange rather than um are evident from the off kind of thing yeah and i think there's probably two things to pull apart here because one is to sort of return to this question of what is social wealth and the other is um this point around the division of labor how come all of this private labor um which is done without any kind of plans done independently uh, how that then feeds into a becomes social labor becomes part of the labor which does reproduce this society 
And there's, there's the two of the linked points. I just, but I want to kind of pull them apart a little bit. So we've got this idea of social wealth. But, um, you know, the first thing we see is that a, a piece of material wealth is not just, again, a piece of material wealth, a useful thing. It's a commodity. Um, and what it's, I think the point that, that you raised there, the, the, the idea of exchangeability, kind of captures or what's the commonality around this what's underpinning it's like yes something's a commodity but what is it about the fact it's a commodity that makes it different that gives this um social aspect to it as you say it's it's that side that's made for exchange it's they share this exchangeability um the the other side of that um is this idea of um, looking at the fact that we do all juice independently without any plan, without any kind of social plan around that. And well, how do those two, why are those two things linked? And this is the, this is a society based on private property. That, um, the stuff which we have is something which we can exclude other people from. And, we are all kind of excluded from the things we need to get by. So I said before that Mark starts the, the very first sentence uh, of the book talking about the wealth of societies. So he starts from, and it's very different to a modern tech, economic textbook which talks about scarcity, he talks about abundance and wealth. Yet at the same time, within all that, it, we're in a state of poverty individually because we are separated from those things which we do need to reproduce ourselves. Um, and if we, the way that we access those things, the wealth of, of this society, which is held in other people's hands, is by using our private property to exchange for the things that we want. And so you're in that position of being able yourself as, to exclude other people from the stuff that you have, which they might want because it's something which is protected by the state, it's private property. Um, and what we all do is use what we have to access what we need. And from the perspective of um, production, making things, that's the reason things are made in this society. They're not made because people need them, immediately because people need them, because you know it's good to make useful stuff um things are made to access stuff they're made for the purpose of exchange they are made um to try and access this world of social wealth because the aim is that you are producing something yourself which is social wealth and you can use that to access other social wealth um but all of this kind of production is carried out independently without a plan. You only really know if you're producing something which counts as social wealth, you know, this kind of exchangeability, this, um, uh, this ability to access social wealth after you've done that, after you've produced things and then try to sell them. Um, and it's it's that side which kind of brings in the aspect of value, which is the way that actually regulates, to use uh, Rubin's, I.O. Rubin's point, it regulates production because that's the signal 
as to what gets produced. You know, whether or not something is sold, is saleable. Um, and I think it's that aspect of, um, of value, the fact that it's stemming from um, this kind of, this production for exchange is I think what's often missed in that there's nothing it's not that there's anything magic about human labor there's nothing special about labor what's going on is is that all of this kind of pool of labor out there isn't being coordinated um it's being carried out independently only through um through value is it kind of related to um, reproductions only if you're producing something which is successfully exchanged does that labor count as social labor we can all kind of do any kind of laboring activity um, but what counts in this society is is it part of social labor does it enable you to access social wealth and it's funny, I think that's all. That's a really good explanation. And I also think that kind of one thing that gets kind of under-examined a lot is that a lot of the time it's kind of out of the laborer's hands how productive they're being. Because obviously, like, we can all just slack off. And, like, maybe that's even one tool in, like, the class struggle is just, like, work, work slowdowns and stuff like that. But it's like, if you just happen to work at the crummy factory, then it's like a lot of that labor isn't really going to be valorized as directly social or at least just like social labor. And this is kind of like, again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but like that could eventually lead to the firm that you work at just going out of business, whether it has new new machines, old machines, how productive it is, supply lines, things like that. And that's just kind of out of the laborer's hands. I think that maybe there's sometimes where we kind of just assume that it's like, maybe like more bourgeois economists will be like, well, they could hear this and be like, well, then work better, work harder, work faster. But like we could even get into like, I don't know how this plays into like gender and like race divides and like obviously like core periphery divides. It's like a lot of the times you just don't really control where you have your job. It's not like you can just get up and go to a better factory because like if you happen to work at a bad one, it's out of your hands kind of. I guess that's coming back to why it's necessary to have this distinction that you were making before, Mark, between like um a measure of the quantity of value in a thing and the measure of like it's the source of value because like mm. things still bear value but in the competitive atmosphere of the market which disciplines labor to have to produce to a social average amount of time um you end up in conditions like jack was just describing where you can't produce to the socially necessary labor time so you're your the commodities it produce although they bear value uh bear significantly less i suppose yeah it's um these i think it's another point about well when we're thinking about um substance and quantity of value again well what what does that mean what difference is that making so you've got all these private labors going on and well do they count as social labor or not you know are um what when that comes together is through the product, the commodity, and when you come to sell that, you know, that commodity's got to assert itself and saying, well, I am part of this social wealth. You know, the labor that went into me can be compared to all the other different types of labors. It becomes 
abstract labor. Um, and then the important thing, the disciplinary part of that is the measure of uh, the socially necessary labor time it takes to, to produce something. And that's where, if you are a producer, you're, you're being compelled by this kind of force outside of your control. Now, whether we're talking about in, in chapter one, simple individual producer, or you're a big company, um, it's a disciplinary force, socially necessary labor time, that um, compels you to produce at the very least at a pace, which is the, the kind of standard pace. You also got an incentive to try and um, produce at a, a greater rate. Because what's going on with socially necessary labor time is that, well, it compares the amount of time it's taking to produce a commodity within an industry, but it's also a comparison across industries. So I'll kind of keep to a kind of chapter one uh, explanation where we don't have companies yet, we just have these, the abstraction is we have individuals producing, individual producers. Um, and the actions of those producers, again, creates this, this thing which comes to dominate them because on a very basic level, um, if you are, say, um, producer, you're a potter. I, I need to think of other trades. I always use the same ones. But if you're, a, I know I always say table. Yeah. It's like why am I always? I don't know anybody that makes tables. <laughs> exactly. Um, but it's simple. But we're it, not commodity um, production. So. Yeah. Um, if you, uh, I was watching um, Great Pottery Showdown. That's why. <laughs> that's why. I was going to say that's why. Yeah. Um, but if you're, if you're a potter, and you are a bit you not great or just slow in general um you might produce three pots a day while other potters are all producing roughly six pots a day and at the end of a day's production you go to the market and what have you got to exchange you've got three pots where everyone else is get is able to exchange six pots so they're able to access six pots worth of um social wealth you can only access three pots worth. Um, you are either going to starve or you're going to go out of business. So there's this enforcement there of being at least as productive as, um, as your competitors. And if you're the person who can produce eight pots where everyone else is producing six pots, brilliant. You're, you're coming out ahead, at least for a while until other people catch up. Um, but this is also enforced between different types of production. So um, if you are a potter, again, and you produce your six pots in a day and you go to the market um, and you see that, say, the weaver who's got the stall opposite you can get more for a day's worth of cloth and here I struggle mm -hmm. uh, producing <laughs> say they the amount of cloth that they get they can exchange for more social wealth than you um 
you'd look at that and think, ah, oh, hang on, um, I'm in the wrong game. You know, I think I'm moving to, to weaving. What happens when you do that and more people move in there because they see that the weavers are getting more of social wealth for a day's work is that then they start to bid each other down, so undercut. Well, I want to sell my stuff. If I sell my stuff for, say, what, what, what I would have got seven pots for before, um, I'm still coming out ahead and getting rid of all my stuff so I can sell that. And eventually that will get um, competed down so that actually across uh, spheres of production, there's this kind of socially necessary labour time is, is um, being enforced there as well. So that's doing one thing, which is enforcing socially necessary labour time. It's enforcing at least a, a, a certain level, a minimum level of, of productivity. So that's an immediate impact that it is having on those producers. You know, that's why um, you, know, you can't even choose to be slow without another form of income. You might say, no, I like making pots. You know, I like to take my time over them, but it's not really a choice you can make. So that's the immediate impacts there. The other side of what's going on goes back to this side, uh, what we talked about around um, private and social labour in the, it's firstly, you know, deciding whether or not your private labour um, counts as social labour counts as part of the division of, of labour within the society. Firstly, that comes about whether you can actually sell what you make at all. Right. Um, or can you get the, the social average for a day's output from that? The other thing that it does is it also um, then decides exactly how that division of labour changes. Because that same signal that put um, people from pot being potters into weaving is basically shifting labour within that society into a different sphere. So the, the way that the division of labour is determined has come about through that signal, you know, through value, what people can, um, can get for their work for a day's labour. It's not just determined okay, things like the productivity and the immediate impact there. It's shifted labour from one branch of production to another. So the division of labor in this society is based on value. Jack, Jack and I were having a bit of a conversation yesterday and because I've been reading this and have come away with the idea that um, value is almost, I think I said to Jack that value was created almost at the point of exchange, you know, in the sense that um, you, because it's possible to make something that, I suppose, make something that, otherwise would have sold the day before but you or the year before but now you've been so outcompeted by developments in other people's productive capacity that now even though it has some use it doesn't um doesn't exchange anymore i suppose would it be a correct interpretation to say that it doesn't have value at that point whereas it the same thing might have had value at some other point and i suppose um if we, t from my interpretation of what you just said, if we take value as this sort of like production signal, um, or this signal that guides production, then I guess it is 
it is possible for value to not be something concrete in a thing, but to be there at one point and gone the next based on the the current arrangement of production in the entirety of society. Does that make sense? Like, is that a, is that a good way to understand value? Um, yeah, um, I think understanding that this is a um, something which is socially determined. That this is um, Marx uses phrases like social substance. Uh, I think sometimes people find that a little bit confusing when they're talking about the commodity and value. But um, what counts here is that human effort, labour has gone into something. Again, this limited pool of labour available to society. Um, The fact that a specific amount of concrete labour has gone into it is not what determines the value of commodity. So it's not the fact that someone is a... God, here we go. The potter, a carpenter. You know, what they're, they're con- what, what Marx refers to as their concrete labour, the actual activity, is not the specific thing that defines whether or not something is a value. It's the fact that it's human labour as such, the fact it's taken effort. Again, it's limited pull of effort within a society. Um, but what? how much of that balance is determined, only determined when that commodity confronts the world of commodities is, is put to the market is sold so that does mean that um if standard of productivity has changed um everyone else is producing now um twice as quickly as you are so again you're the potter you haven't got the new fancy wheel that everyone else has got um and they are now producing 12 pots and you're producing six pots in a day um you you're only able to um look the impact of that of that increase in productivity means that um actually the the value of each pot each individual pot falls so now 12 pots contain um or uh, represent a day's labor so you're going to the market with six pots Whereas before, those did represent a day's labour. Now, the social standard of pots is that 12 represent a day's labour. You can't sell your six pots and still get the same um, amount, so the day's labour's worth amount. You'll get a half day's. Um, nothing's changed about the pots. You know, um, there's, there's nothing kind of physically different there. But it's the social standard that's changed. So it's not it's not the exchange, it's exchange that creates value. What the exchange does is that's when you have this kind of social signal which says, firstly, have I exchanged it? Does it count at all as part of social wealth? And secondly, well, what part of that, how much of that social wealth does it count as? So it's the exchanges where, yeah, something... Your commodity, your produce, what you're hoping is, does this allow me to access the rest of social wealth or not? That's the point there. And then it's it's that social determination, that relation of that commodity 
to all others. And that's what happens there. So the exchange is like society in a sense saying, well, yes or no as to whether it's a value and then how much social wealth it represents. Yeah, I heard, um, I think it was Andrew Kleiman say that this is like an issue of, and I get these two words confused all the time. So hopefully I have this in the right way around. He was saying that like, when you go to actually exchange your commodity, its value is not an epistemological question. It's an ontological one. It's just like the capitalist just doesn't know what the value is, but that doesn't really change what the value actually is. You know, it's like when they get remunerated for it, when it gets valorized or whatever, it like, it's still what it would have been before. You know what I mean? If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, they obviously, you know, we price tag on things and we have an understanding and an expectation, but that's not something within capitalist control. Um, yeah, again, it's it's the the interactions of an entire economy in effect by determining what that value might be. So yeah, you you can think, well, yeah, I've I've been doing a good job. I've been producing as quickly as I did last week. Um, so I should get the same. Actually, if things have changed elsewhere, value of those items has changed. Yeah, in this, Dan and I have both been making a um, a small effort to read through the Isaac Rubin book on value. And we've gotten as, almost as far as like the first few chapters, so we're getting there. But one of the things that I really appreciate about that is I was really confused as to like why he starts with commodity fetishism. I was like, wait, I'm reading a book about value. Just I've like, can I just skip to the section of the book that's just Marx's theory of value? Why do I have to read the thing about commodity fetishism first? Um, and he makes the point where he was like, actually, commodity fetishism, and I might be misusing this word as well, but like, while it has this kind of humanist element of like, yeah, you don't actually know where the things are coming from and you don't know how messed up the production line that brings you your shirt or your like new Apple computer or whatever it could be, like that isn't really the main thrust behind the theory of commodity fetishism. And he's like, you could actually just call commodity fetishism like the theory of production relations of the commodity capitalist society, because that is just kind of what it is. And the one thing that kind of blew my mind is when he was like, um, commodity fetishism helps explain why it is that when you go to the store, you don't just see, oh yeah, the value of this object is X and that's what you're going to pay for it. You know what I mean? You're going to pay this many labor hours or whatever. Like the reason that you go and you see a price is because the commodity economy can only really it like inevitably takes the form of relationships between things and not necessarily just the pure social relations that are underlying that right like yes it is veiling those social relations and that's a big part of it and i do really like ruben because he's like not trying to poo-poo that at all he's like yes this humanist element of it or whatever is important but the main thing behind commodity fetishism is like explaining why we just see things exchanging for things exchanging for things when we can kind of know oh well there are human social relations underneath here why is it why is it like that so yeah that's just what you were saying kind of made me think about that yeah i think that's yet another one of the things that david harvey really just doesn't seem to understand um at least in his book that yeah he has this thing of commodity fetishism it is purely this idea of I don't know who 
um, the harvested the lettuce that's in my salad. Well, in a, a planned economy where everything's being produced for for need, um, I don't really need to know who's harvested the lettuce. Um, that's that's not what Marx is getting at. It's as you say, it's this thing. Of, it's the fact that um, through the commodity, we're relating activity, we're relating um, producers, we're re relating buyer and seller. Um, the, it's really I mean, the, what the commodity fetish section does is more pull together what's come before. It's not necessarily saying anything new, but probably explaining it in a different form that, yeah, this is um, how we express um, what it takes to produce something, what it takes to produce social wealth is through the commodity, you know, what it exchanges for. Right? Um, that's the signal that we have. Again, it's, I think, there, this point about private and social labour uh, again is in there where he talks about um, the way Robinson Crusoe and he runs through different um, societies. The economists love Robinson Crusoe for some some uh, reason, but he, he sort of starts from there and runs through different forms of society as to again how people relate to each other in this division of labour. Um, he makes a point there again that. In uh, in different forms, it's arranged in different ways. In a household, it's just a kind of a natural agreement. Or it's detail he goes to cooking. Some of it could be tradition and so on. Um, in a rational society, it's a plan of some kind, participatory plan. Uh, in in capitalism, that's not there. You know that 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 relation between people is only expressed through the things they produce and exchange. Hmm. And that, that makes me think like, we were speaking a little bit about this, about just like, what it what is it then? Because like, we, I don't know. Hopefully from like this conversation, the listener can see that it's like, you do really have to make a concerted effort to understand a lot of these ideas. And that, you know, like you were saying, Mark, it can be kind of easy to just fall back on what other people have written about and just take their word as gospel or whatever. But like, as much as we like to act like these ideas are all eminently understandable, if you do just go to the original text of like the first three volumes of Capital, like it's extremely difficult to understand if you're, especially if you're just doing it on your own, like the ideas are eminently understandable by anybody, but it will take a little while for you to kind of fully understand kind of what's going on. Like I make no you know, argument to say that I even fully understand a lot of this stuff now. Um, but it just kind of makes me think about like what it is that is important then to get across to people. And I know that you you had sent us a little while ago a um, a project that a group called Gigan Standpunk, hopefully that's how you say it, uh, put together. Um, was it called Work and Wealth? Is that what it was? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Where they basically tried to explain a lot of these ideas without even using the word value. And it really impressed me because I was, I've kind of been of the mind of like, you know, where is the text that explains these ideas in a way that, you know, the layperson can understand 
we need to get these ideas to people. If only people could just understand the law of value or whatever, like, uh, yes, then we would fully have the socialist society. But it really got me thinking more like, well, what is it that you actually need to explain to people? Um, and it does seem like we have a tendency to overthink these things because we can, you, you can just, people know that stuff is messed up. People know that it's messed up, that you can work two jobs, three jobs and not have enough money if you're living in a city to like make ends meet. Um, and so it's just interesting. Like I, I was just thinking like, maybe we could just talk about that now about just like, what is it that you can easily explain to people about this stuff that gets at these ideas and what we're trying to explain when we kind of have this like, you know, scientific understanding of the capitalist commodity mode of production without kind of getting into all of the nitty gritty. Because it does just seem like if you just kind of take people out of the world that they're born into where private property is the norm, it's always existed, it's always what will exist. If you can kind of just maybe just tell people like, hey, private property in the terms of like, you know, ownership of different commodities and the way that, you know, use versus exchange value, all of these things, those might just be the only things you need to explain, unless I'm crazy. And you do need to sit people down and be like, ah, yes, but what do you think the substance of value is, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think, I do think it's, it's important that there are people out there who read capital, who um, do follow through all of these arguments about value and you know, work their way through all three volumes. I think there are really important things about that, but I don't think it's necessarily important to have that in-depth knowledge to understand why this society is against your interests and also to understand some of these concepts without maybe necessarily, as you say, using the word value. Um, one of the things I think that makes makes it difficult to understand Maybe difficult to fully engage with chapter one or to relate it to everyday life is just the way that Marx starts. He, he, he's using this abstraction. He's using, um, he's trying to derive what follows from a very basic observation about the economy that, um, it's the form that wealth takes is commodity. So he starts from that and then, well, okay, well, this is weird. What's the commodity? We pick that apart. What do we see? What, what can we tell? Um, which is fine. And it's, yeah. I'm not critiquing the idea of derivation, um, but maybe it can be more helpful for people to take a less abstract look at what's going on. So Marx has started with concrete observation, commodity, but then all of this kind of abstraction, which to start the book isn't like the economy we see for very good reasons. But we can still, I think, come to an understanding of what he's saying there by without that level of abstraction. So um, to look at this society and say, well, um, I might be repeating myself here, but this is a society based on poverty amongst abundance. So this immense collection of commodities, I think, is the term he uses um, that typifies wealth here. But we're all separated from those things we need to get by. It's a society based on um, private property, 
We've got the right to do with what we own as we want to, but we also can be indifferent to other people in that. Now, we have the right to exclude people from it. Their needs are not something we have to worry about. You know, if I've got a ton of food, I I don't have to care that the fact that someone else out there needs food because you know I've got the right to say, no, this is all mine, you're not having it. Um but because at the same time, okay, I I might have a little more than others, but we still need to access what other people have, their private property. You know, how do we access that? We offer our private property we have in exchange for what we want. Uh, um, you know, with that, the food example, like my hunger doesn't matter. It doesn't count. What, I, what does count is what I've got to offer for the food that will satisfy that hunger. Um, and what does that mean for what's made? Well, we make things to be able to access stuff. Now, what we make is more private property, and we make that to access other people's private property. So we're not making things because we've identified a level of need for them, or a direct level of need. It's, you can say it, need isn't completely irrelevant, but it's whether or not people will exchange things for them. So it's need only counting if it's backed by in the real world money and money being in effect a form of private property that you can use to you can turn into any other form of private property private property in the abstract so um we've already got the point there that well this is a bit weird where all of this useful stuff out there but like people are still in need amongst that they're separated from it the fact that um Society therefore is requiring you to uh, to act to, to have private property to get what you need. Um, that things are made for that purpose. All of those things are already signs that this society is not really in your interest. And then when you bring in, which Marx doesn't yet, but when you you bring in the fact that those people who are able to make things are actually the people who, whose private property is you know, to use a Marxist term, the means of production, it's the factories, it's the, the machines, and they're able to use their ownership of that as a lever to get work from people. Because for most of us, the real private property that we have on an ongoing basis to access things is our ability, our capacity to work. Then, okay, well, you're in a society where you are compelled to work to someone else to access the things you need. They use that property of yours to acquire more private property for themselves. At the end of, of that, you're back in the same position. You know, you've got to sell your capacity to work tomorrow. But the capitalist, the owner of the, the means of production, has ended up with more private property. So it's that. Uh, all of those things, it's a really truncated way of describing things, but you know, with a little more detail, I think you can pick out things which value tell you. Chapter one, maybe chapter one to three, 
tell you, um, but are not so explicit in terms of that kind of surface level concrete experience of people. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit on something which is just like maybe the most important thing that will get people kind of out of capitalist ideology, which is just like, this is a rich society. Ostensibly, we live in the most productive, richest society ever. Now, most of the world goes to bed hungry and most of the world is poor and the world itself is like dying. So wait a minute, something else must be going on there. And you could just go, okay, well, yeah, it's that we're producing for exchange, right? It's that we're producing to sell things and it's that we aren't producing for use. And hey, wouldn't it be great if we could just have some kind of plan, right? If we could all like imagine that, if we all actually rationally thought about what it is that we need, um, that might even be it. I mean, it's also just a question of like, I guess I tend to overthink this a lot, but it's just like, you got to understand who you're talking to because different people will have different like, you know, frustrations with capitalism or issues that they're facing. And you have to be able to speak to those, I guess. I do do worry a little bit that like people have taken on some of the kind of like uh, um, a degree of moralizing about capitalism and their place within it. Like Like there's a way to read it such that, okay, I don't have the right to access things that I need. Somehow I've failed to leverage my property. Now, obviously we can come back and say, well, you don't have sufficient private property to start the game of capitalism in the first place on a a fair footing. So there are ways to come back with other moral arguments, but like um, there does seem to be a necessity to like start from a position of proposing the necessity of a, a mode of production which starts with some degree of right to access or at least like a right to contribute um, and receive fairly in return, at least in some kind of transitional stage, maybe like, um, but I do worry there's quite a lot about, there's quite a lot of ideology that comes along with the capitalist mode of production that people have imbued, I suppose. And a lot of that discussion of what the, the ideological content of capitalism is, it can in some ways be found in these uh, early chapters of capital as well and what it requires of people i suppose but yeah, yeah I... Mm. I think just if i could just say something real quick on that too i think that like a lot of that moralizing kind of finds its uh political um maybe manifestation on the left in some kind of like social democracy because it then becomes a time of like well we could actually run things better we the workers if it was just if everybody was a worker and if we could enshrine ourselves as the owners of all of the means of production and not really actually change anything else, either through some kind of like general cartel or like market socialist approach. I think maybe that's kind of just like, that's like kind of like the lazy approach, right? Of just being like, well, it's just the capitalists, which are idiots and they're just greedy. But if we did everything exactly in the same way, then it would be better. Yeah, I, I think um, you can derive a about ideology, just like you say, from this, it's very kind of almost basic setup um, that I wouldn't even necessarily say imbues ideology. I think it generates ideology because I think ideology comes from how people relate to this world. So um, you, the fact that um, you sell your labor to, to get by, well, suddenly that becomes a means. You know, that, well, because it is your means. 
okay, well, this is how I get by. Ah, this is great about the fact that I am a worker, that I that um, I have employment. Employment's brilliant because great. This is how I get by. This is this is an offer to me. Uh, you know, when the state um, enforces um, private property, because you know, okay, Marx doesn't really bring this much in yet, but you know, the, the state is the power that um, stands behind private property. In effect, it, it's saying to um, to its people, this is an offer. I'm giving you freedom. You've got private property that's protected. Make of that what you will. Yeah, it's an offer to you. Um, but from the perspective of people within that society, well, you have to relate to things in that way that you know, well, that is how I get by you know, through my work. Um, it's, it's almost understandable. It's not people having a wall pulled over their eyes when they see it in that way, but what they then do is try to accommodate themselves to it. And then that's when it becomes things like it, it naturalizes. It's just like this. How else could it be? You know, this is fine. You know, we, we've, we've all got this chance. We've all got this opportunity. Brilliant. Or alternatively, um, maybe things have gone a bit wrong. You know, maybe people out there are cheating the system. You know, maybe those um, rich people are putting their, their finger on the scales and, yeah, it's sort of stacked against us. And, well, maybe it'd be great if we have a Corbyn to come in and set things right and uh, get things how they should be working. Or in its more, um, like, reactionary is, angle, like, yeah, oh, exactly, it's those immigrants, yeah, yeah. right? They're not yeah. playing by the rules. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm right. I'm doing the right thing. If it's not working, it must be because someone else out there isn't doing the right thing. So that's where kind of morality side is generated. Yeah. It's hustle culture. If you're not if you're not winning, you just got to get up earlier. You got to grind some more. That's what I think. I mean, that's like its grossest ideological form. Of like hard working is this perennial virtue. You know, labor Tory politicians say well the hard-working people of my constituency want and it's it's a virtue hard-working you know, rather than a kind of a misery yeah the hard-working tory voters who own like various franchises of taco bell in the country there yes those people yes. <laughs> very hard workers um is there anything else we wanted to touch on dan anything else you think um, we haven't gotten to uh, well, the only thing that's on my mind is that we haven't touched on the idea of money at all, and it comes up quite a lot in that text. Um, I don't know whether it's something we necessarily want to um, to cover now. I, I did a little bit, of, this is a bit of a digression, I suppose. I did a little bit of, uh, made a small effort to try and understand um, like value form theory, value theory critique kind of thing. Um, and it seemed quite, it was it was quite nice because when Jack and I made a sort of like made an effort to read Capital publicly quite a long time ago, um, one of the things that we did talk about was whether there was a kind of like historical progression in Marx's analysis in the early chapters of Capital, where you start with like um, 
basic commodity production, which is effectively like barter and then money develops afterwards. Um, and it was interesting, the standpoint from which this text that we read today seems to have been written and those sort of value form um, critique theories posit like the necessity of money from the outset kind of thing. Like, um, and I suppose I should, should try and iterate, like try and explain like, um, money in uh marx's analysis is just um picking or creating a commodity to which all of the commodities are compared is my understanding so that um rather than having to go through this process of going to the market to determine whether the commodity that you have represents social wealth you almost have a commodity a form of commodity in the form of money that represents social wealth from the off and everybody accepts that it um it represents social wealth it's one of the things that um this text criticizes harvey for not understanding harvey um sort of doesn't seem to recognize that value and money are the same thing or, or serves the same function kind of thing and he seems to think that sort of coming back to what we were just saying about like um social democratic or reform i feel like there's a lot of the critique of what's being criticized criticized in harvey here is kind of like a type of social democracy or like a if only we had a sort of fair trade version of capitalism or um if only people couldn't accumulate wealth um then you would do away with you'd be able to have a sort of a fairer version of capitalism i suppose um yeah uh yeah yeah um yeah i I struggle with what Harvey is actually trying to say about money because he tries to draw a distinction between value um, and money somehow as if, so he, he recognizes some things about value. He does talk about it as a kind of type of social power, but he seems, um, I think just uh, skimming, just to see one of his quotes, it says that uh, representation of value in the money form is a perversion of what value is all about. Um, I don't quite understand how you can read chapter one of Capital, which he's done several times, and come away with this distinction. Um, what Marx does in um, in the, the, the value form section of, of chapter one is like you're talking about before that the chapter itself isn't a historical account it's a theoretical account so people sometimes have these arguments about oh, what kind of society is he talking about because he doesn't bring in classes you know he talks about individual commodity producers and so on but what's going on there is it's a um it's a theoretical Account. Again, like I said before, it starts with the commodity and from the commodity derives these things in a very abstract way because, okay, he wants to pick out things to examine before bringing in more and more complexity. And, and the same applies in microcosm to the value form section where it sort of starts from uh, one commodity exchanging for another commodity and then builds on those forms until he gets to money. He's not there saying that, you know, this is how money came about. 
what it's looking at here, what it's trying to explain is money in that we know value has this independent form. I described it just now as this private property that can become any form of private property money. So we know that this exists. We know that that is, is value um, in the abstract as such. It's not a commodity. In effect, it's all commodities. It's, it's, it's pure value. Um, well, how can we understand this independent form? A bit easier in his time because it was gold or silver, so it was still a commodity. Uh, and now we've moved beyond that. But it still needs an explanation of why this commodity represents value as such and could be exchanged for any other commodity. So he starts with two commodities in relation to each other. He says, well, what's going on here? And saying, well, the thing is with value is that um, it needs to be expressed. And it's this social substance. You can't crack open, I'm going to say it again, a pot and say, ah, you know, there are kind of four ounces of value here. Um, it's this, again, it's this relation. So it needs to be expressed in relation to another commodity. And when that pot is being exchanged for um, cloth, again, I need a list of different commodities, but um, what, what's going on there is that the, the pot is, it's, is asserting itself firstly as value, and then as how much, because it's saying, look, that's value, that cloth is value. I am the same as cloth. I can be exchanged for cloth. The first step and the second step is the magnitude, how much value. You know, I am 10 yards of cloth. Um, and from that, from that point, kind of builds on that to, um, to money because that wouldn't be an adequate form of value because value is something which relates that commodity to all commodities. It relates the labor that produced that commodity to all social labor. And that's not really expressed by one thing relating to another. It really needs to be able to express itself against all commodities. And that is why it's necessary in a society which is based around the production of value, um, that there is this independent expression to be able to relate all commodities to each other. So that's kind of the, the, the purpose of that section. So what money is, is almost, um, it's the ideal of value. Uh, this is no longer a commodity, it's all commodities in enough uh, volume if you've got enough £10 notes in your wallet, you can access whatever you want. Um, so, yeah, it's almost like the ideal form of value. So why, why Harvey has this idea that it somehow is, again, he, he does use this, these things of contradictions and perversions. Um, the idea of, oh, the problem is it's, it's a store of value. Um, it's storing social power. Why he thinks this is a contradiction to um, simply the idea of value, I don't know. All commodities are stores of value. It's just that this is the one which is, the one which is, it's not just, um, I mean, I talked about being the ideal form. It's not really even that. It, it's the necessary 
form of value for a society where commodities are produced and need to be exchanged. So his critique of it is just very, very odd. Um, it baffles me, I have to say. So is the, I, this could be a really stupid question, but I've always been kind of confused when people use the phrase value form. Is that what is meant by that phrase value form? Yes. Yeah, so um, as I said, you because value is this, in his words, social substance, it, it's, it's actually an expression of a relationship, of the relationship of the labor that went into it to the labor of society. Um, again, we can't say it. it needs a form for it to have an impact on the world. Um, without getting too Hegelian, uh, essence must appear. You know, value means nothing if there's no way of, um, of it impacting on the world. And how it can do that is again by re- um, relating as um, the commodity that bears the value, relating itself to something else. And actually, yeah, okay, we, we go through those things, it could be a relating it to one other commodity. But actually, again, the adequate, the necessary form is money. The money is form, the independent form that value takes. So now, in a sense, you, you can see value because it's got this form and it's got £10 inscribed on it. So, yeah, that the value form is, um, in a sense, value's appearance in the world how it impacts in the world. And so that could be money. But then as you're saying, like all commodities are kind of stores of value. So in a sense, when you kind of like it, the exchangeability of any commodity, could you also consider that the value form or is it specifically money now? Like it was gold however many years ago. So again, in theory, if it's just this exchange of two commodities, then each, the other, from your perspective as the potter, the cloth, or, or the, even your perspective as the pot, in a sense, what that pot is doing is expressing its value in its other commodities. So for the pot, cloth is its value form. I from the see. other side, if you're the weaver and you've got your, your cloth there, that cloth's value form is the pot because it's expressing, it's saying, I am worth two pots. I am two pot equal. I am the same thing as that. That's value. That's what I am. And that that, that quantity is the quantity of, again, of that, that thing. So value form just means the expression of value. Again, it's, it's necessary. It has to happen. Otherwise, there wouldn't actually be a, such a thing as value. Because again, it's not this magical thing that's happened that labor's gone into an item. But, oh, now it's got value, and that, that makes a big difference. You know, that typical thing of, you know, oh, you know, like the, the mud pie argument. It's, it's people always still bring up. It's the fact that this, this is being done in relation to other activity. My effort, my work, has been done in relation to other effort, other, other work. But I can't just go and stand in the market and say, hey, I did some work. And this is how much work I did. That comes through the commodity expressing that 
in exchange by pointing to this other thing and saying, yeah, okay, you see my value now. That's what my value is. But again, for a society based around commodity production, that's not adequate. And that's why money is a necessity. It's independent uh, form of value. Gotcha. Okay. That makes total sense. It's so funny with most of this stuff, like with value theory, I have a tendency to be like, oh, it's way more complicated than I'm, than I'm thinking. Yeah. It's gotta be way more complicated. And then it gets explained to me and I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> that was fairly simple. <laughs> um, okay. That was hugely helpful. Seriously. I mean, it's funny. Like I've said this before in the show, when I read the first volume of Capital, there was plenty that I didn't get from it. And I think that was mainly because I was doing it kind of like for the most part on my own, trying to use like the Harvey, right? Or various other tools um, to kind of try and get through it. But there is really something to be said about like, you kind of have to engage with this stuff socially. You have to be able to talk about it and like throw things at the wall and be like, discuss it basically. Cause like even each, you know, couple of weeks when Dan and I do the show, I'll think that I understand the reading. And then once we start talking about it, I'm like, Oh yeah, no, that is a good point. Once Dan says something or something like that. So very helpful. Yeah. No, I definitely. I struggled when I read capital on my own. Um, yeah. I thought I kind of got it. There's only through reading things a bit later. Oh, maybe I didn't. What helped me was a reading group. And I'd really encourage anyone who, who if you can, um, try and find or even start up a reading group. Uh, Criticicuffs uh, have in the past helped put on reading groups um, so people can contact us for even when a new one starts. Um, we can maybe point people in the direction of others as well. Um, so that side definitely. The other thing is that it's not the worst thing in the world to turn to someone's interpretation, you know, to look at um, someone like Harvey. Oh, no, <laughs> I see. I wouldn't say it. No, Harvey's a special case. He is particularly bad. Um, <laughs> but to, 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 to look at someone like Mikhail Heinrich's books or, or something along those lines. But the problem is when people use that as a substitute for their reading, you know, um, they can they they can help, but I would say don't rely on them. Use your reading first, and then check your understanding against um, an interpretation. And don't be afraid to question the interpretation. Yeah, um, yeah. Rv is particularly bad, and I I'm, I'm not saying this because it's a big kind of that Marxian phallus waving exercise. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Aren't I? Yeah, aren't I great? This I'm dissing some well-known Marxist. Um, these errors matter because that's what people take as being what what capital says. And it's not just it's not just a disagreement. Say, Mikhail Heinrich, there's some stuff he says I disagree with, but I would still say he's a very serious. Um, understander and explainer of capital and of capitalism. I mean, these mistakes are so egregious that I think they're a problem. You know, they actually prevent people from understanding the book. 
And I think the Kritistikov's article, I had to flick through Harvey's chapter one um, yesterday, just a skim read. I think the Kritistikov's article doesn't go hard enough on him. I, you know, I think that actually it's even worse than the article makes out. But again, the reason I can be so scathing is because I, I think understanding this economy, this society, is really important for anyone who wants to change it and who wants other people to join them in changing it. So whatever gets in the way of that understanding, I think, is a political problem. Um, so, yeah, it's it matters. Like I said before, you don't need to understand capital to come to good conclusions and good understandings. But capital really does help and can tell you a lot. So I really do want people to come to it, but not through a reading like Carvey's. That's the one thing people should take. Be <laughs> suspicious of David Harvey. <laughs> Anyone or us, you know, of like um, the the Harvey piece, which we've you know, alluded to, um, sort of throughout our discussion, um, we try and give our own understanding of capital within that, you know, to say, well, this is why Harvey's wrong. Um, we really welcome if someone reads it and says, I don't, either I don't understand that or no, you're wrong. Email us. You know, get in touch with us. Um, we really do value that. We, you know, as a, as a group, it's really important to us that we do challenge things, challenge ourselves, you know, challenge the stuff which uh, we read, we discuss. Um, and it helps us. If someone says you're wrong, great. <laughs> yeah. If we agree, you would think, oh, yeah, you pointed that out. Brilliant. That's great for us. Again, it's that understanding it's important however it comes about the music you heard this episode was music to kill bad people too by king gizzard and the lizard wizard if you like this song you can check it out and much much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more commie discussion. Till next time. Whoa, whoa, whoa.